0: We are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hello and welcome back to Politics Mad. It has been a crazy two weeks in politics and last week especially, possibly one of the most tedious and long weeks in politics I can remember. How was it for you, Raul? It was a really intense election.
1: It was. Um, I'm glad from a personal point of view that it's over. I, I think I echo the uh, sentiments of many of our listeners in saying that I don't think I could have gone on with much more of this drama in the US continuing for longer and longer. That being said, though, it does look like it's going to continue. Um, it's been quite a two busy weeks for me. I was very lucky in that on Saturday I uh, was actually working while the US networks and the BBC broke the news that Biden had was projected to win, which was obviously a great privilege to be in the newsroom at such a historic time. But not a particularly fun day to work on, given that things quickly spiralled into chaos. Uh, you know, with various editors up on their feet and walking around and running around and saying barking commands and things like that so it was quite a difficult day of work I was certainly burnt out after it but nonetheless a fascinating two
0: weeks and even on the home front as we're going to discuss now. Yeah definitely I mean that election it was just sort of draining in some ways I don't think I stopped looking at Twitter for about four days (laughs) so by the time it was finally over I just wanted to sleep again. Precisely. But yeah Yeah, domestically it's been actually a really busy few days, both for inside the government and perhaps for wider ramifications around Brexit as well, but more on that perhaps in the next couple of weeks as that pans out. But the first thing we've got on the domestic front this week is Dominic Cummings, someone we haven't spoken about since the summer when we covered his uh, famous trip to Barnard Castle. We agreed that we should go for a short drive to see if I could drive safely. We drove for roughly half an hour. And ended up on the outskirts of Barnard Castle town. We did not visit the castle. We did not walk around the town. I'm Trying to do the best I can to um, to make the government machine work uh, as well as possible. If the prime minister thinks that I should stop, then that, you know that's not for me to decide. It's up to him to decide. The news of the week is that Dominic Cummings has gone. He's been sacked. He's left Downing Street. He was pictured yesterday leaving the front door with his wooden well cardboard box, r- walking outside for good, we're told. I mean, a lot of people said that's staged. His office isn't even in Downing Street. You know, he was doing it for the cameras, his sort of last chance of grabbing the limelight, and apparently he isn't actually gone-gone. He's still working for them from home until December, but this is the end of Dominic Cummings in Downing Street.
1: Yes, I mean, I I must say I'm, I'm more on the staged camp rather than the unstaged camp because... He, he would have clearly known that there were lots of political journalists and photographers outside, number 10 as there often is, and there was no need for him to leave through the front door. Uh, Downing Street has many so-called back doors from which people can enter and um, come in without any uh, scrutiny or notice. So, yeah, I, I think he did stage it. And then that begs the question of why and what would you have to say on you know why he did that and what what's
0: the current thinking in his mind well i think he's probably trying to say that he's still relevant i mean you know this is the guy who masterminded the 2016 leave campaign he's the guy who had a huge role in the conservatives victory last year in the general election this is someone who clearly believes he has been responsible for some of the biggest events in British politics over the last few years, and he's not likely to go quietly. You know, many people have said that's not his style, so I imagine this will not be the last we hear of Dominic Cummings.
1: No, and what you say about him being so influential, it's it's worth noting that although he's such a divisive figure in the UK, some people really, really viscerally hate him and some people love what he's done, He, along perhaps with Nigel Farage, has been the most powerful force in British politics who's never been elected to a position in the Commons, and that is worth noting. I mean, he, in large part, led to the Leave vote in 2016, and that more than anything any British Prime Minister has done in the post-war era has really set the course for this country for the next few decades. So, like him or loathe him, he is a man who has achieved a lot within his time in government.
0: He has indeed, and he has always sort of been contentious in the Conservative Party, though, because it's thought that many Conservative MPs and ministers aren't that fond of him, and he isn't actually a member of the Conservative Party. He's another of these sort of unelected advisers who sort of gains more publicity than many government ministers, and whenever that seems to happen in politics, it never seems to end well. Other than that, really, um, you know, since the election last year, he's sort of been focusing on trying to reform the civil service and the operation in Downing Street and Whitehall. And a lot of people have said about Dominic Cummings is he was a great campaigner for the Conservative Party, but when it actually came to governing, he struggled a bit. And there are many sorts of conflicting reports from different news outlets over how he came to leave and how amicable it was but what we do know is it began a few days ago when it was reported that Boris Johnson wanted a new chief of staff to run downing street and um this is because they thought it could be done more smoothly and some people regarded it as a bit chaotic and his number one choice for the role apparently was his director of communications a man named Lee Kane now, Kane was seen as very close to Dominic Cummings, th- those who were big supporters of Brexit and very influential in the Conservative Party in the last couple of years. However, this appointment of Kane was opposed by apparently many Conservative MPs, and ministers, and also allegedly the Prime Minister's fiancee, Carrie Simons. Now, amidst all of this infighting, Kane made the decision to resign, and it was said he would be leaving in a month and there was also rumours that Cummings was initially reported to be angry, but not set to leave himself. The day after that, it was reported that Dominic Cummings had in fact resigned, but would not leave until December, and yesterday we had the news that he had left Downing Street for good, and we had the pictures of him leaving through the front door. Now, apparently, this happened because Cummings and Kane had been briefing against Boris Johnson. The BBC reported that he fired them after he reportedly uh, labelled him indecisive. Some dispute this, and apparently other sources have said um, they might even return before the next election. So potentially this means Boris Johnson values them as campaigners, but not as advisors in government. We don't really know. There's a lot of contention about what really happened.
1: I thought it was quite ironic uh, when the reports surfaced, uh, the briefing reports surfaced about Cummings calling mr Johnson indecisive, because possibly one of the most decisive things that Johnson has done to date is in fact firing Mr. Cummins, so yes, it was quite a shock decision, and I think it's it's come rather quickly, hasn't it? I think it's fair to say this has happened in the space of forty eight hours where we you know it seems that all was good within. Downing Street, and now all is certainly not good.
0: Yeah, and you can't help but think this might have something to do with the Brexit negotiations and the fact they are coming to a close now. Hopefully, there'll be a deal. You have to wonder if potentially Joe Biden's victory in the US election might influence those negotiations, might have had some influence in that respect. There's so much going on in politics right now, it all seems a bit of a mess, and it's very hard to cut through all of the conflicting reports you hear about what might actually be going on inside Downing Street right now. And
1: also given the last events of the uh, the events of the last few days my mind is cast back to that event that you mentioned the Barnard Castle episode where Dominic Cummings um, allegedly depending on whether you believe this was actually breaking the rules or not but most agree that it was breaking the rules took that famous trip uh, up to Durham and then tested his eyesight by driving to the local site of Barnard Castle about 30 minutes it's a rather strange possibly quite reckless way of testing your eyesight but obviously Mr Johnson spent a lot of political capital saving Cummings and not firing him and that really damaged him that not only damaged him in terms of the government's coronavirus response which was severely hampered by people saying well if, if he does one thing why can't I do that and secondly the amount of popularity that he had after remember, our listeners need to remember this is just after the pandemic hit. This is just after Mr. Johnson came out of hospital. These sorts of things. There was a lot of goodwill towards Mr. Johnson, which was largely squandered from this event. And I can't help but think that that was all in vain, really, given the last events of the last forty-eight hour period.
0: Yeah, and I think another thing to point out is some of the really radical things, contentious things that Boris Johnson has done have often been attributed to Dominic Cummings, whether it's proroguing Parliament Mm. or potentially breaking international law with the Internal Markets Bill. You know, the fact he invested so much political capital in this man, in fact he stood by him during the whole Barnard Castle incident, means it must have been something pretty serious to finally get him to leave.
1: Yes, and I guess the question now is where does the Conservative Party go? Many Tory MPs are quite happy that he's gone as are many in the country. But how does this leave Johnson? Does it leave him vulnerable? Does it leave him without an ideological rudder?
0: Who really knows? We'll obviously keep people up to date about what happens with Dominic Cummings if he returns sometime in the future. But until then, we'll move on from the Conservative Party to the Labour Party, because in the last few days, the Labour Party has had the results of its NEC elections, the National Executive Committee. Now, the National Executive Committee is very important in the Labour Party because it's the internal body that votes on how the Labour Party is run, and this will be very influential moving forward because, as we've seen, Keir Starmer has made it his mission to move the Labour Party on from the Jeremy Corbyn era, and whether some admit it or not, he has made the party more moderate and he's clearly pushing for more reforms. Now. The National Executive Committee is a group of 39 people within the Labour Party who are elected from various positions. So it's made up of the leader and deputy leader, a treasurer, three shadow cabinet MPs, a representative from Young Labour, a number of trade union seats, uh, other socialist societies, there's a BAME representative, a disabled representative, representatives from Labour councils. Uh, MPs chosen from the Parliamentary Labour Party, uh, a Scottish and a Welsh representative, and what's been crucial in the last few days, nine CLP representatives. Now, what that means by CLP is Constituency Labour Party. These are people elected from across the country and are seen as sort of grassroots members, and that's where the key votes have been in the last few days. Now, the NEC is important because they vote on things like Implementing the recommendations of the EHRC report that came out a couple of weeks ago, and stuff like how to proceed with the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn. So this could be very important moving forward. So that's
1: a brief overview of the NEC, and I've got to um, I've got to admit that I think, like many of our listeners, I just assumed the NEC was the nine people from the constituency Labour parties who are elected and not actually the wider 39 group it really puts their power into perspective but explain to us what happened with these recent lines from the NEC elections.
0: Yeah so essentially 15 positions on the NEC were up for grabs so that's the nine CLP seats you just mentioned uh, the disabled member the youth member the councillors the treasurer and the Welsh representative and there was a sort of campaign from two major factions in the Labour Party. One was what was called the Grassroots Voice. That was the far-left momentum-backed group. And then the other was called Labour to Win, and they were backed by the sort of right and centrists in the Labour Party, uh, organisations like Labour First and Progress. And essentially what happened is the far-left won seven of those 15 seats. And that's actually less than they won last time. So what it actually means is, despite the left doing reasonably well, Keir Starmer has increased his majority on the NEC. So he now has slightly more power and a sort of sure votes to do what he wants to do, although it is still very tight.
1: So what does this mean for the, the party moving forward? Is Starmer going to have a bit of a roadblock in this NEC, given that they're so powerful and they decide so much of what the Labour Party does, or is this a good result for Starmer? Oh, this
0: is a good result of your Jokir Starmer. He'll definitely find it slightly easier now to get any reforms he wants through the party. Uh, it's undoubtedly weakening the power of the far left. Whether uh, moving the party to a more moderate position does that further, we'll wait and see. He's obviously obviously got the general secretary he wanted which will give help him with his agenda. And although his majority is still slim, it does mean the upcoming elections to decide the leaders of Britain's three biggest trade unions will be even more important because currently, The three biggest trade unions are Unite, Unison, and the GMB. Unite, who have been in the headlines a lot over the past few weeks for reducing their funding to the Labour Party, are currently seen as very left-wing under their leader, Len McCluskey. If they were to be led by someone more moderate, it would increase Starmer's power on the NEC even more. Currently, the other two unions, Unison and the GMB, have been far more supportive for Keir Starmer.
1: Interesting, and something we'll watch as the weeks go ahead. It seems that at this crucial time the conservative party is ripe for the taking by labor and it looks like mr starmer is really solidifying his position there on to international news now and obviously the story on everyone's minds in the last few months really if we're if we're honest has been the us elections in that we now have a projected result.
0: Yeah, and honestly, those four days, I was watching TV for most of it. It was like the CNN, Sky, BBC. I was flipping between all three. I never seemed to leave Twitter. I was following all the pollsters to find out all the different counts in different counties and various states. Uh, I, was, I got really into it, but by the end, I was just moody and I wanted it all over. You know, I'd go to bed one night and they say, well, oh, you have the results the next morning. Took takes another two days, but we got there in the end. So what happened all round? Well, yes, I think, I think you summed it
1: up with your experience. It was the result that took, well, what felt like ages and ages and ages, even if the projected victory was only barely a week after the election day. So obviously there was no result on the night. Uh, most of what we could see is that Trump won Florida on the night, which was a key victory for him without winning Florida on the night it would be basically impossible for him to win nationally. And as predicted, his victory in Florida kind of led eyes to the key states, the the so-called now blue wall of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But also in the race, Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia were extremely close and had not been called. Neither had North Carolina, it should be said, but that was looking like fairly safely in Trump's hands. Mr. Trump led in most of these states. Now, It's really interesting if you look at a graph of who's winning over time as time elapses after election day. And I think the New York Times has done some great graphs on this front. Usually in these key states, you have a Trump lead, which is then whittled away slowly and slowly and slowly by Mr. Biden. And the reason for this is, of course, that postal ballots or mail-in ballots, as they call it across the pond, were massively skewed towards Democrats and Mainly were left to be counted in the massive democratic cities. Now, this is something that was not expe- uh, that was expected fully. We've talked about it on the podcast many, many times beforehand, as had the vast majority of U.S. Politica- political commentators. And of course, even with all of this going on, all of this acrimony and waiting for the results, we had this rather unprecedented speech on election night, which will surely go down in history as one of the more memorable moments of not only the Trump presidency, but over the last two weeks as well. Let's have a listen.
0: This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election.
1: election.
0: So our goal now is to ensure the integrity For the good of this nation, this is a very big moment. Yeah, and that was hugely surprising. And, you know, all of that could have been avoided if the US just do what we do and not released all the results until all of them are in, rather than sort of drip-feeding them over time. Because you can see... Because that clearly confused a lot of people, and it's given Trump an excuse to argue that he should have won, which wouldn't have happened if they just released them as one big block. It's very
1: true. I mean, I never really cared that much about the intricacies of the british electoral system but now in delving so much into the u.s electoral system in a way that i'd never done previously i've got to say objectively i think ours is a much more efficient system as you say all the votes are counted at the same time and every single constituency is announced as they come in there's no sort of reporting 50, when there's 50% of the votes counted and 75% of the votes counted, you only get one report, which is when all of the votes have been counted. All the polls close at the same time, and exit polling is only allowed after all the vote polls close. Now, in the US, there's just no sort of system like this. It's it's a first-come, 1st first serve. Every single state does it this differently. Every, uh, arguably, in, in some states, every single county does it differently, which just leads to this whole mess which requires as both me and you, I think, saw a team of non-stop political commentators and anchors on networks like CNN constantly discussing how things are panning out in ways that most Americans, let alone most people around the world, would struggle to understand.
0: Something that's quite interesting on the night, I found, you mentioned um, the New York Times, who were putting out loads of really interesting statistics throughout the night, and I imagine... I remember just after Florida was projected and the results were coming in for I think Georgia and North Carolina, initially the New York Times were sort of, they had their needles where they said which way states might go, and they initially said Georgia was quite likely to go for Trump, but as more data came in throughout the night that changed, and I think it was something like 4 or 5 a.m. on the night, well, the morning for us, that the projection for Arizona came in from Fox News and a lot of, they got a lot of criticism for that at the time because most other networks didn't declare Arizona or projected for Trump until a few days ago. So it was sort of a disjointed process in many ways. But I think once Fox called Arizona it was the moment I thought, mm, actually, Biden might win this.
1: Precisely, and I remember that moment very well because I woke up at about 4.35 British time. I was working on the day of the election. And the day after the election, and I woke up and saw the news, and I instantly thought, oh, this is looking like Trump might snatch it. And I went on to Betfair and I checked out the odds, and Joe Biden was at two to one. And after getting myself up to date with the latest from the states, I quickly deduced that this is all planned. This was all how things always was how things were going to go, especially assuming that Trump won Florida. It would always go to these states that we've listed and it would always be based on the fact that Trump was initially leading in these states. But then as mail-in ballots were counted, his lead gets whittled away. So I put on a bet quite confident in winning and I'm glad to say it has currently paid out.
0: Good for you. Now, what was really interesting on the night, obviously, was Florida, which, in the end, Trump won by, I think, something like over 300,000 votes, which, for a state that's been a swing state for for a very long time now, that's really important, and that's because of various groups. Now, what happened with the various voting blocks?
1: So, it's obvious that although Mr Biden is the projected winner the pollsters got it massively wrong yet again. Most of their averages of what they expected just simply did not come to pass. In some of the blue wall states, Biden was projected with a 10-point lead. In Florida, he was projected on an average of three points. Trump won Florida by three points, meaning they're six points on average out. And as you kind of allude to, this was because Mr. Trump did much, much better with ethnic minority groups than was ever expected. Overall, comparing the 2016 and 2020 elections, Mr. Trump gained 4 percentage points with African Americans, 3 percentage points with Hispanics and Latinos, and 5 percentage points with Asian Americans. Those are the three kind of main ethnic minority groupings in the states, and he's all inc- he's increased his lead. Oh, sorry. He's increased his vote share of all of them. And given the fact that Mr. Trump has been one of the most divisive presidents on the issue of race and immigration, this has startled most people. And it's really confounded the pollsters.
0: So why then do we think this has happened? Because, you know, the Democrats have often said that, well, a lot of commentators have said that US demographics are favouring the Democrats more and more as time goes on. It wasn't so long ago some said, oh, there'll never be another Republican president again because of the way these demographics are shifting.
1: Yes, I mean, this is a big worry for the Democrats. I mean, I would be extremely worried if I was a Democrat seeing these figures because if a man like Mr Trump can increase his vote share in these key minority groups, given the last four years of his presidency... It, I think, puts a large crack in the wall of the idea that minorities will always vote for the Democrats as they are increasing in terms of their percentage of the total population in the country. The country is just going to become more and more and more democratically. We've seen that really take a hit on this election day in 2020. Now, does it mean that in reality the Republicans have These minority groups? Of course not. The Democrats lead massively still within these minority groups. But it's perhaps a presage of things to come in that the Republican Party could go many ways from this election defeat. And one of the things that would probably be the best for them to do is really focus on these minority groups. They are going to be the future demographically of America. They need to try and get them together. Donald Trump somehow has gotten them through. People have said because he appealed to these groups through his conservatism. Many people in these ethnic minority groups are natural conservatives. That's the same in the UK as it is in the US. Often immigrants come from cultures which are much more conservative than your standard Western culture. That's the same within the Latino cultures of America and largely within African-Americans where you tend to be more conservative than your normal white person in America. But I think over time, as political analysts really start to get their teeth into the results, we'll see more explanations about why these minority groups are tending towards towards Mr.
0: Trump. Yeah, and one thing I found quite interesting that the commentators were saying as it progressed was that the Latino vote tended to be sort of grouped into one block, when in fact, in somewhere like Florida, a lot of the Latino population comes from somewhere like Cuba, where the idea of socialism is regarding a very poor outlook, and the Republicans really played to that strength by trying to brand the Democrats as socialists, whereas in somewhere like Texas, New Mexico, Nevada, where many of the Latino population come from Mexico, there's definitely a sort of different outlook among the population.
1: It's very true, and I think now people in America are starting to see Latinos as less of a monolith and more of a, as they actually are, a group of various countries, all the way from tropical Cuba to the southern tip of freezing Argentina. And they're starting to see that these people don't all vote in the same way as we expect them
0: to. So, why did Biden win then? Because if he performed poorly on these strong democratic groups, how did he pull it off? How did he win back those key states in the Midwest?
1: Well, it looks like that he largely won by the unprecedented historic rates of turnout in the US. We don't know for certain what the turnout was because not all the votes are counted, but it's fairly likely going to be in the high 60s of percentage. Now, if you're in Britain or if you're in most other European countries, that's not a particularly outstanding level of turnout. But given that in America, your turnout is certainly for presidential elections is usually within the 50s of percentage, that is a staggering leap turnout, and it's largely down to the fact that this has been the most divisive presidency since Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War period in the States. And it's largely because of this higher turnout, especially within ethnic minorities, who famously didn't really turn out that much for Hillary Clinton, that Mr. Biden clinched it. It's worth noting that Mr. Biden won the first most votes in the history of American elections, largely because the American population is bigger now than it ever has been, and secondly, because of this massive, unprecedented turnout. Mr. Trump won the second most votes in American history, again, for the same reasons. His groups also came out more than they did in 2016. So rather than many voters switching sides, You didn't really have that much of that. You had a bit of fraying among the sides, a bit more minorities going towards uh, Mr. Trump and a few more white people going towards Mr. Biden, but no massive shifts really. All you had was both sides coming out in much higher numbers. Of course, Mr. Biden's came out in higher numbers than Mr. Trump's.
0: Obviously, Joe Biden will be the next President of the United States, and Trump is clearly not cooperating with the process. He still seems to believe he can win. It's very unlikely he'll concede at any point, judged on what he said on Twitter. And the only sort of hint we've had is yesterday in a press conference when he gave the indication that he might not be the next President of the United States, as we can hear here.
1: I will not go. This administration will not be going to a lockdown. Hopefully the, the, uh, whatever happens in the future, who knows which administration it will be. I guess time will tell. But uh, I can tell you this administration will not go to a lockdown. There
0: won't be necessity. Lockdowns cost.
1: Yes, this is something I think we've seen many times previously with Mr. Trump. He'll take a topic, a person or a country, and he will attack it vigorously. Let's say in this case it's the election results. He'll then start to openly muse about what he was saying not being the case, as we've seen possibly in that clip we just played, before coming down on the opposite side. Again, in this case it would be accepting the election result, almost as if he had never opposed it in the first place. North Korea is a great example of this. We all remember the famous rocket man, fiery speeches he was giving against Kim Jong-un in 2017, early in his presidency. And fast forward about a year, you had pictures of them shaking hands in Singapore, acting like best friends, with all of the previous derogatory comments, of course, forgotten. This is a very standard thing with Trump. Attack something, muse that it's not the case publicly about it, and then reverse it. Now, that being said, I wouldn't assume that he's going to be at the inauguration of Mr Biden. I don't think he'll ever formally concede. A a few Republicans who I was speaking to at work previously were kind of saying that, look, he realises that he cannot be a tyrant. The US Constitution does not allow for that. But he probably won't concede. He'll just leave on the 20th of January with no concession speech and no phone call to congratulate Mr. Biden.
0: So what then do you think that will mean for the transfer of power on the 20th of January? Because a lot of people have been saying, oh, well, Biden is going to come in and sign about 300 executive orders to undo the Trump stuff. Do you think Trump will make it easy for him?
1: Clearly not, no. And he's not been making it easy. There's this brewing political storm in the, in the States, about the fact that the Trump administration is not sharing intelligence data with the incoming Biden administration, which is a commonly held convention. Once there is a president-elect, you basically give them a large amount of the briefing data that you would receive as president because they need to hit the ground running. Mr. Trump is not doing that. He's not playing ball there. And this is an impediment for the Biden administration. However, we can see that He's really trying to get the ball rolling. He's been calling foreign leaders, notably those of Britain, France, Germany, etc. He's been starting to put out policy information on what he's going to do on the coronavirus, his biggest challenge, as he himself states. He's clearly intent about hitting the ground running himself. Mr. Trump, in withholding this information, will damper that transition, but he won't stop it. And he won't seriously derail it, I think.
0: And we'll obviously keep up to date with that, and I'm sure we will watch the inauguration on the 20th of January, whoever is there. Well, obviously it will definitely be Joe Biden, whether or not Trump is there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, I don't even think,
1: as I said, Trump will be there, as is usually customary for the old, all old presidents as who are still alive to be at the next inauguration.
0: Right then, so... In the past couple of programmes, we've mentioned a dispute in the Nagorno-Karabakh region between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And since then, there have been uh, ceasefires, and now there has been a deal. So what's happened there, All are... Well, this
1: week, there was a decisive moment in the conflict, potentially bringing the end to the, end the conflict, certainly for now, but potentially for an even longer period. Let's have a listen at what the sounds were like from the region recently. So those were people on the streets of Baku which is the capital of Azerbaijan and they were celebrating the victory of their country in this conflict.
0: And so the two nations have signed a peace deal brokered by Russia and Turkey so talk us through the terms of it and why one side is far less happy than the other.
1: Well Azerbaijan as you can hear from those celebrations has a lot to celebrate Effectively, it's gained a lot of what it wanted. It's gained a lot of territory. These include the areas surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh, which is itself an enclave within Azerbaijan. Uh, These areas surrounding the enclave were occupied by Armenia. They will now all be ceded to Azerbaijan. It also gains areas of the enclave itself, Nagorno-Karabakh, including the second city of Shusha. This was captured only days ago in quite spectacular fashion, given it was not really that close to the front lines. The Azerbaijanis led a kind of sharp, uh, severe, almost like blitzkrieg-like attack and captured the place. The Armenian troops within the surrounding areas of Nagorno-Karabakh will be withdrawn and phased in a phased manner and... Almost 2,000 Russian peacekeepers will be deployed to what's left of the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh that is within Armenia's hands, so they can maintain peace and a small corridor between the enclave and Armenia. Armenia really only gets to keep the bits of Nagorno-Karabakh that they currently control, which is about, I think in land area, it's about slightly over 50%. But in terms of the other territories they lose around Nagorno-Karabakh, massive,
0: massive loss in land. So the big people to benefit here then are clearly Azerbaijan and Russia. It
1: seems so, yes. I mean, Azerbaijan has gained a lot of what it wanted. It's gained a significant portion of its international recognised territory back it therefore can conclude that the war was largely successful. You've got to remember that this war, it was a bit disputed about why it started, but now we kind of know that this was all really a sophisticated Azerbaijani plan to very much like the politics of pre-World War II, they want something, they're going to achieve it through military goals. And they have largely. This is the crucial thing. They waged a war and they largely won the war. It's also, as you say, a victory for Russia because they gain a significant presence in the area. 2,000 peacekeeping troops in an area, Nagorno-Karabakh, which is officially recognized as part of Azerbaijan, which they weren't present in previously. This area is right to the northwest of Iran. It's on the doorstep of Iraq. It's firmly on the edge of the Middle East, and that's a crucial area for emerging Russian power politics. So it's a big victory for them also someone we should mention, Turkey. Turkey will feel emboldened by this because Turkey has supported Azerbaijan throughout this conflict. Azerbaijanis and Turkish people are very late related in terms of culture, in terms of language. Historically, obviously, Turkey and Armenia, Azerbaijan's enemy, have had a lot of problems. There's the Armenian genocide, there's the centuries of warfare. The two countries are not friendly. Now, the fact that Azerbaijan has won after such backing from the Turkish state, the Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan will feel elated. More importantly, he'll probably feel emboldened. Turkey increasingly got into various conflicts in the area, notably in Libya and Syria. And one has to imagine that the president and the country will feel emboldened by this victory in Azerbaijan to do
0: more in the region and on the international stage. Okay then, so do you think this is the end of this conflict? Is it the last we're going to hear from it for a while? I think not,
1: no. Because much like the capture of Alsace-Lorraine by Germany in 1870 from France, you have a scenario where the losing side, Armenia, is deeply aggrieved. There's a great, uh, there's a great sense of revanchism i.e. the idea that there needs to be revenge for the territory they have lost. They need to regain that territory back. Because these areas were largely populated by ethnic Armenians, they always felt as part of Armenia, even if officially they weren't. Now, Azerbaijan is elated and can feel very happy with its results, but it too will probably feel emboldened to capture the remaining areas that are under Armenian control. Now, that being said, with 2,000 Russian peacekeepers in the area, that's going to be quite difficult to do. But I don't think you'll see the end of this war. You'll see possibly the cessation of hostilities for a good period of time. But much like this war started in the 1990s and remained largely dormant until now, I think we're going to have another period of dormant relations between the two countries, which will eventually flare up in the next few decades over some
0: issue. We'll wait and see then. And if anything more happens on that front, we will obviously report it. And We'll obviously report anything else that happens with President-elect Joe Biden. Uh, we'll be around for the next inauguration when I will inevitably have to change the show's opening theme, which is more effort for me, really, which going to be, yeah. Yes, <laughs> and, no
1: Trump, so no Trump in our theme tune. Yes,
0: swap in for Biden. Maybe add a few more world leaders, actually. I think we can make it a bit more interesting. I'll have a little play around with that one. But yeah, that's the end of the show, so thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.